Hello everyone, it's October 13th, 2020. So the Crew-1 launch has been pushed back on account of a Falcon 9 turbo pump issue. We'll get into that. Then we're talking to Dr. Ella Atkins again, and she's going to tell us about helicopters and more importantly, helicopters on Mars. Even better, and liftoff. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 280 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And no Dennis. <laughs> no Dennis. He's coming back next week. Yeah, he'll be back next week. He's just out this week. But um, I think we can handle it. We'll take the reins. I had just read, and this is actually not old news, but like a good week old. I did not know that SpaceX would be on the 23rd or so doing a little... Um, I don't know what you call it, like a reveal of the final design for Starship. Yeah, I had seen that, but I kind I kind of get numb to it because they keep saying, "Oh, well, we'll reveal the final design." The fine, you know, it's just like, okay, all yeah. right. So you're thinking that it's not going to actually be the final design? No, no, because- no. It, it may well be. It's just that when I see. When I see that, I it kind of goes to the back of my mind. I guess. I don't know. I'm kind of excited, although you know, there's. Still going to be a lot of little changes in, you know, I'm sure. Yeah. In fact, I think that Elon had said as much. He said that there will still be some small changes, but this is basically what's going to be flying to Mars, you know. Yeah, you, ne- you never large. stop iterating. But yeah, yeah I mean, at, at very least, like if they're doing a whole event, like they're always exciting and fun to watch. You know, that's that's pretty cool. What's exciting to me and my hope is that not that it's going to be drastically different, but I do like seeing, you know, the changes. And so that's what mm-hmm. I hope to see. I don't know how much different it's going to be because, you know, I think that they've kind of dialed it in at this point, but I don't know. I mean, it could be, you know, I mean, we've seen so many fairly large changes since 2017. Like maybe this will just be another big one. Like maybe they're going back to, I don't know, that big Delta wing. Oh yeah. 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 The, um, the tail fins, but the flappy, the flappy ones Mm -hmm. are the, the ones that were like down at the belly. Right. Yeah. They're just like fixed down at the belly. Yeah. I mean, it, it'll be interesting to see if they change the aerodynamics because they, you know, it, it, this is not an easy thing to do. And they've spent so much time figuring out, oh, this will work. Oh, that won't work. And yeah, hopefully, hopefully they have enough information now that they can really say, yeah, this is what we're going to be doing. I mean, yeah. that, that seems, that seems to be true, but you know. Plus, I mean, they've done so much testing. How, how many more changes mm-hmm. do you think are, reasonable or well i mean that's that's the thing is like they haven't done any aerodynamic testing yes they've done a little hop but that doesn't tell you anything about re-entry i I don't think anything Mm -hmm. anything of consequence about re-entry um and that's really that's really where all the different iterations of three fins two fins red fins blue fins you know just kind of yeah (laughs) yeah so i i guess at this point it's just testing out the engines themselves and it's just been a lot of gnc type stuff but not actually bringing it back in from orbit. Like that's the big difference you're seeing there. Well, and and how cool was that? I mean, you know, this isn't in our show notes, but the the hop that they did with uh, with the big starship, I think it was uh, SN five. It's off the top of my head. Don't email me. I know I know I'm probably wrong. <laughs> but uh, the the most recent hop that they did with the starship prototype was so cool. Because the engine was off center, and so when they landed to have the vehicle traveling vertically um, without any lateral movement, the whole chassis has to be tilted over so that the center of mass is in line with the engine. And it, it was uh, clear when they landed that they landed on the you know slightly tilted over because the crush core on some of the legs. The legs on one side were were crushed more than on the other, and it's it's really cool that we as a species have the GNC knowledge and and capability that we can do something crazy like that. You know, it just it's really exciting to to see what we're doing 
as a species. SpaceX's Crew-1 mission has been delayed, and not a lot of info just yet, but basically uh, there's been some off-nominal pressure things going on with the turbo pump, and they had a good Demo-2 launch, and they've had many other successful launches, and so this is like a, this problem, whatever it is, can't be something that... It seems to me like this is an issue with this particular vehicle, but maybe not because they seem to have reason to think otherwise. Okay, so before we talk about that, let's rewind a little bit. Crew-1 is going to be flying Mike Hopkins, Victor Glover, uh, Shannon Walker, as well as Sochi Noguchi, the uh, JAXA astronaut. We're going to be talking about the gas generator. In the show notes, I, I put a link to a video by Tom Muller, the uh, SpaceX's VP of Propulsion Engineering. And it's just a quick explanation of how gas generator cycle engines work. But in particular, he's talking about Merlin. So it's not super specific, but the things that he's saying apply to Merlin in, in particular and not all gas generators, kind of like, you know, he talks about the way that they cool the turbo pump. But basically, um, the GPS-3, um, the SVL-4 launch, um, was scrubbed earlier this month uh, due to, um, quote, unexpected pressure rise in the turbo machinery gas generator. That's uh, from a, a an Elon quote or an Elon tweet, and so I think this is kind of an odd sentence structure. Turbo machinery gas generator. Well, it's the it's the engine gas generator. Yes, it's part of the turbo machinery. I don't I don't know. I don't think he's necessarily referencing something specific with this odd um, sentence structure. I think it's just that this is the way that um, they think of things internally, and it sounds odd to me because I'm not in the SpaceX uh, propulsion Slack channel. But so, so basically, it's the turbo pump that pressurizes the low pressure fuel in the tank to the high pressure that you need to actually inject into the the combustion chamber. And of course, this is like really a place that you don't want to have unexpected pressure rises because you're already burning fuel rich. Uh, you're already burning super, super hot. Uh, you want this to work out really well, right? So they scrub the GPS-3 launch, and we're thinking that that's related to this Crew-1 mission delay. Um, SpaceX officially said that uh, the delay is due to first-stage gas generator off-nominal behavior from a non-NASA launch. That perfect that description perfectly fits the the GPS three launch. So, David, you were talking about how uh, the Crew One launch seems to be particular to this vehicle. The problem is, uh, Crew One is flying on uh, booster ten sixty one. GPS three is booster 1062 well yeah that's not exactly what i was saying i was just saying that the problem doesn't or it would seem to me it does not seem to be something that's common across all falcon 9 boosters because this does not happen all the time so right. I mean, why, that's all i was saying yeah if, if yeah. they had this issue on uh 1062 why are they only delaying the 1061 booster and not all of mm -hmm. them i would assume that it's because it's not serious enough that they have to delay you know non-crewed exactly. missions exactly exactly that's exactly what my thought was um so it may it you know, whatever happened may indicate an issue on every engine in, you know, whatever that family is. Um, you know, I don't know if they, mm -hmm. uh, produce a certain number of engines that, that have a, a shared production choke point. Like maybe, uh, there's a certain, 
a certain serial number range of, of engines that cover, you know, a month worth of production and they, they all are suspect due to this, you know, who knows what it comes down to, but yeah, I, I agree. It seems more likely that it has to do with the criticality of, of a, of a crude launch. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of how, like, you know, certain cars have, you know, problems, but it's just between mm-hmm. certain VIN numbers. Um, exactly. Um, there's a, a nice quote from Kathy Luters. Uh, she said, um, with the high cadence of missions SpaceX performs, it really gives us incredible insight into this commercial system and helps us make informed decisions about the status of our missions. So, I mean, that, that's really cool. Like, since SpaceX has been flying what an average of of one and a half one point seven five missions a month this year they got to identify that this might have been an issue when you know maybe if they weren't flying as many it wouldn't have been clear that that you might want to do this delay um and and it also sounds like like NASA was involved in in making this decision uh, of course NASA made sort of a unilateral a more unilateral decision to delay crew one earlier. Uh, this year, um, they uh, they delayed it until I guess to today. Whenever this uh, this current delay that we're talking about was put out, it, it was going to be um, flying uh, the 23rd through the 31st, somewhere in there. And, and delaying to the 23rd to the 31st was NASA saying, "Hey, we want to finish our qualifications work." And, and now, of course, it's delayed uh, no earlier than mid-November. Um, but it's kind of cool to see, you know, NASA can make some of these decisions, SpaceX can make some of these decisions, but ultimately it sounds like both organizations were involved in delaying to mid-November. Yep, but this is not going to affect the Soyuz launch, which is coming up, I think, like the day after we release this episode, so that's still on schedule. This is at least not anything like, what was it, just like a year ago, or, or even less than that, where we were looking at some pretty serious problems about keeping people on board station. So this mm-hmm. is just a nice little minor delay yeah. you know, by about a month or or even less than a month. Speaking of sort of uh, another commercial crew news, Chris Ferguson will not be flying on the demo mission for... Um, Starliner. Starliner, yeah. He's not going. <laughs> so can you think of any other example of someone, I guess, like backing out of a space flight because of something like a wedding i mean obviously there's you know health reasons or you know things like that but this seems kind of unique to me i don't know i i think i think a wedding kind of falls into personal issues and, and we've definitely seen astronauts drop out of missions for personal issues that you know just were unspecified mm. so you know m- maybe maybe somebody's dropped out because of a wedding he's a good father because you know this is his daughter's wedding and he's not going to miss it but it i guess there's no way of his daughter knowing when that launch was going to happen because if so they maybe could have scheduled it just you know a couple days before the launch maybe a couple days before the launch <laughs> yeah well yeah like you go to a wedding and then you go yeah well, not a couple of days. I guess it would have to be longer than that. Yeah, you have like quarantine and things like that. But yeah, and now we have even more quarantine. So yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't think it's going to happen. I think if it was if it was uh, not during a pandemic, probably wouldn't have been an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, you can you can get a lot closer as long as the wedding is before the launch. It's probably going to be pretty close to uh, to being acceptable. But well, and and for somebody like Chris who's already flown X jillion number of times, yes, he, he has flown a lot. I don't know how many missions Chris Ferguson has been on, but it, I mean, he was a veteran of the shuttle, right? Like quite a few of those, I believe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he flew on shuttle. Uh, STS-115, 126, and 135. I like how three missions currently qualifies as a gajillion. Like, Yeah, ju- I mean, that's... Just just three missions puts you in rarefied air. I don't know who holds the record for the number of launches, but it might be a tie between several people. But I can't wait to see that broken by a wide margin, you know, like just like... Mm-hmm. 
you know, a veteran of 25 missions and then maybe, you know, 30, 40, 100, just depending on how regularly you can get vehicles up into space and back down again. Okay, so this is interesting. So the record is currently held uh, by two people, Jerry Ross and Franklin Diaz, who both flew on shuttle seven times. However, John Young also ties them for seven launches if you include launching from the moon in the ascent stage. But it'd be it'd be six launches from Earth plus one from the moon. Wow, that's a conundrum. Does that count? <laughs> I mean, in a way, it totally should because you're launching from the moon. That's that's hardcore. Let's do three short and sweet. What's the first one, Ben? Chinese taikonauts have been selected for the country's space station. China's Human Spaceflight Agency has announced that 18 taikonauts have been selected to participate in the country's upcoming space station project. While the agency hasn't released the astronauts' identities, they revealed that unlike previous rounds, this selection was open to civilians, uh, reflecting the need for engineers and people with other skill sets that will be useful for running the station. The group consists of seven pilots, seven spaceflight engineers, and four payload specialists. China plans to launch the core of the new space station, Tianhe, in the first half of 2021, and hopes to have construction complete by 2023. Next up, the Autophage engine receives funding. The UK government agency DASO, which is the Defense and Security Accelerator, has awarded £90,000 or $117,000 to research at the University of Glasgow, where an autophage or self-eating engine is being developed. This engine will shorten in length as it consumes the exposed solid fuel from the bottom up, thus improving the vehicle's overall mass fraction during ascent to orbit. This new innovation will allow the UK access to the small payload market, along with companies like Rocket Lab, and a test fire of the rocket is planned for next year at Kingston University in London. And finally, SpaceX is deorbiting the original Starlink satellites. Less than 18 months after launching them, SpaceX has begun deorbiting its original batch of Starlink version 0.9 satellites. Since late August, 32 Starlinks have been deorbited or allowed to re-enter naturally. There has been no statement from SpaceX detailing the reason for the recent uptick in deorbits, other than improvements in later versions. Though critics of Starlink, Viasat in particular, have claimed that this is evidence of reliability issues. SpaceX says their competitor diagnosed this from limited initial data reported to the FCC, as well as a misinterpreted analysis by Jonathan McDowell. SpaceX has strongly denied that this is the case, claiming 30 milliseconds average latency in full capacity tests. In a recent FCC filing, SpaceX states that, quote, Viasat steadfastly refuses to allow facts to get in the way of the story it wishes were true, and that they will continue to transparently report any on-orbit control failures to SpaceTrack. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and corrections burns. Uh, and we have some cool information from our friend Emery Stagmer. Uh, he <laughs> has some information on Elcross, which obviously we talked about last week. Yeah, well, it's 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 more like a more like a cool link. So yeah, we talked about Elcross last week. I had toyed around with the idea of getting Emery to come on and talk about it because he worked on Elcross. But after hearing the show, he sent us a link to the flight director's blog for Elcross, which is really cool. So there'll be a link in the show notes to that. Um, I haven't read all of it, but um, last time we talked to him, I, I ended up going and, and reading some of that. And it was really, really enjoyable. I mean, it's a, it's a cool mission, even if it worked right the first time. 
And when you have to do, you know, in-flight diagnosis, it becomes even more fun. Yeah, really cool. And I'm sure we'll have Emery on at some point in the future for something else. <laughs> on again. He's already been on the show three times or two times. So this week, uh, we are talking to Professor Ella Atkins, uh, who is the professor in the Department of Aerospace Engineering at the University of Michigan and an IEEE senior member. So welcome to the show. Thank you. So yeah, just go ahead and, and tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm, uh, like you said, a professor of aerospace engineering. I also uh, am in the robotics department at the, well, Robotics Institute, which may be a department in the future at the University of Michigan. Uh, my research studies autonomy, which broadly speaking is looking at having software make decisions that not only keep a vehicle safe and on track, but also have authority. So in the long term, rather than automation aids, the software would help keep the system safe by also making decisions that would keep a vehicle safe when a pilot or operator is not making the right decisions. It's not a, a part of automation that I often think about, but yeah, that... <laughs> It's it's interesting to be able to keep people safe when they're not doing the right thing. So one of the things that we were hoping to talk to you about was sort of the idea of automation on other worlds. Um, you know, we're all really excited about uh, Ingenuity being on Mars. Obviously, we can't speak to the specifics of Ingenuity, but I'm hoping that uh, some of the things that we're going to talk about today um, will kind of prepare us and our listeners for what to expect as we're flying things on other worlds. So to kind of get us started there, the, the first thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, I noticed that you had written a paper uh, back it, well, it was published uh, September of last year um, called An Experimental Investigation of Tractor and Pusher Hexacopter Performance. Um, so I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the the engineering and the aerodynamics when we're thinking about different uh, types of flyer arrangements. For hexacopters, when are tractor and pusher configurations preferred? So most people, when they think of multi-copters, uh, a quadcopter, which is most common, being one with four small propellers, and a hexacopter being one with six, uh, most people don't really worry about the motors and the propellers. They think, okay, am I going to get the data that I want? Can I carry the camera? Is it going to go the direction that I want, or is it going to lose stability and come crashing down? That's usually what we think about. But somebody had to design the vehicle. In the case of the quadcopter or the hexacopter, a design has kind of converged that is good enough for line of sight local flights, but it's not very efficient. If you want to go long distances or stay up for a long time, these vehicles have to carry very large batteries, which really limits the amount of payload that they can carry. When you go to a place like Mars that has a very thin atmosphere, the efficiency goes down tremendously more because there isn't enough air to push down to lift the vehicle, which is what happens to keep any sort of air vehicle driven by rotors, whether it's a helicopter, a quadcopter, or hexacopter up. So this particular paper, uh, we were looking at the question what happens if you pull, meaning that the propeller is on top and the motor is below the vehicle up, or if you push, meaning that you actually flip the motor and propeller upside down, spin the propeller the opposite way so that it's actually pushing up, meaning the motor is above and you get thrust that way. 
Both designs have been used on aircraft. Uh, many years ago, there was a Cessna aircraft that was used very successfully for cargo that had the propeller behind the wing. So we know how to do both. This particular work was looking at a series of wind tunnel tests, meaning that we mount the vehicle on a load cell which measures forces and torques. And we have airspeed measurement capabilities and we run the wind tunnel at different airspeeds and measure how efficient the vehicle is at different angles and different values of motor thrust. This allows us to characterize the lift and the drag that the vehicle has uh, using the different combinations of puller and pusher designs. So in this paper, what we showed in summary is that the puller configuration, which most people think of when they think multi-copter, is actually less efficient in hover than the pusher configuration. So if what you want to do is to lift a camera up into the sky and stay in one place, we're doing it all wrong. We should flip the motors upside down. If, on the other hand, one wants to fly fairly quickly at a high speed going forward, the polar configuration is more efficient. There are good reasons for that aerodynamically. A lot of the aerodynamics is driven by the energy that you impart to the air, meaning the turbulence, the circulation of flow. So when you're pushing, it turns out that you get better hover because you have uh, only the turbulence behind the motors uh, because the propellers are behind the motors and the propellers push a lot of air down. In polar configuration, that works better for going forward because you're going to disturb the air anyway. So the polar configuration allows you to get undisturbed air, push it down. You get some drag anyway, but it's not as bad as the pusher configuration. So anyway, this paper just showed that in a, even a simple study where you take an off-the-shelf vehicle and do something like flip the motors upside down, you can get a significant difference in efficiency. So as we think about going to places like Mars, the design of that vehicle is so important because we can't afford a lot of extra weight, we can't afford to use extra energy, and we definitely want the flight vehicle to stay up and collect data for as long as possible. That's so cool. I, I, I never considered that hovering might be more efficient if you put everything, you know, above the blades. It's just, I don't know, <laughs> like helicopters don't work that way, oh, or at least here on Earth. But I guess you're saying that maybe, you know, like if you have something that's like a heavy lift helicopter, like those kinds that, you know, pull things out of water, let's say, then you would want something that was actually essentially inverted. So uh, let me uh, clarify a couple of things. There's There are two excellent reasons why conventional single blade helicopters have the rotor on top. The first one is that if you flip it upside down and you push it up, you have a very unstable system. So think inverted yeah. pendulum. The mass of the main body of the helicopter with the people and the payload is above your uh, propeller. So it has to push that up, which is very unstable. If the rotor is on top and the people in the cockpit are below, then that's a very stable configuration. You're holding the pendulum in the way that it naturally wants to be. So that's a big reason. With multi-copters, you don't have that much difference because they're already unstable. Before software autopilots, it wasn't humanly possible to fly a multi-copter. So it doesn't really matter from a stability purpose. You have to have that software there anyway. The second reason a conventional helicopter shouldn't have the propeller below it is that 
as you said, helicopters, a lot of their mission is to carry things below the helicopter. And the last thing you want is a big spinning rotor blade mm-hmm. down there. Makes sense. And that, that practicality actually is kind of interesting because I was thinking about one of the reasons that we tend to build, um, you know, multi-copters for like hobby use with the blades on top is because it's, it's, you know, the, the practicality of landing the thing. Um, do you think it would make sense if you had, you know, something where your payload is just a camera or transportation, if you're hovering, could you just, um, flip in the air so that you were upside down? Or I, I know that the shape of propellers is unintuitive to me, but very important, um, if you just flip the thing upside down and fly upside down, can you get the same sort of efficiencies, but getting to pick what configuration you're in for different portions of the flight? No, you can't do that. Uh, each helicopter blade is a mini airfoil. So if you look at the side view of a wing and the kind of teardrop shape that it has, that gives it a lot more efficiency. The same thing for propellers. You build the blade in the shape of that teardrop varying the pitch along the blade's length so that you get uh, as much thrust as possible when you spin the blade. That means that if you spin it backwards, you're going to get almost nothing. So most motors are not even built to be driven backwards. If you flip upside down, what's going to happen is you're going to drive faster along with gravity into the ground. Now you can rotate your motors. So some of the concepts for urban air mobility and unmanned aircraft have used a tilting rotors similar to the V-22. Difference is they're usually a lot smaller vehicles. The trade-off there is in the complexity because you have to have extra motors and structural support if you're going to rotate the propellers. But there are designs. We know that wings help us stay in the air longer. So there are a lot of designs being considered for Earth-based applications where lifting surfaces that looks something like wings, but maybe not the same as the commercial airlines that we fly on, uh, are taking advantage of the aerodynamic lift that you get with low drag, but then the propellers are adding on to that. So those designs either have multiple propellers that uh, have the ability to rotate so that you can take off vertically, land vertically, but then use them in a forward flight mode as well, or else they have enough motors that they just turn some of them off Uh, when they're not in the mode that uses them. So some would point forward and some would point up. It seems like it looks a little silly, but I mean, if it reduces complexity. (laughs) Well, if you go out and you look at the urban air mobility concept vehicles on the web that are popping up all over the world, some of them really do look so different that they almost look silly. I always look at them and think, well, are these actually better? And it's really Mm -hmm. hard to tell just by looking at an artist's conception of what the vehicle is going to look like. But there really are, uh, with electric motors being so low cost and efficient, uh, there are a lot of design concepts that are going to be a good balance between maneuverability, Mm -hmm. which the multi-copters offer, and efficiency, Mm -hmm. which the fixed wing aircraft offer. Um, So we talked about pushers and pullers. What about the, uh, I've seen some configurations where you actually have both on the same, Uh, on the same motor, you have a propeller above and a propeller below. Can you talk at all about what efficiencies or inefficiencies that configuration might have? Sure. Those are called coaxial, meaning that they have the same axis of rotation. 
but there's multiple propellers, usually two. Those seem like they would be really good designs because you could have large propellers and you don't need that much space. The trade-off is that, and, and they can counter-rotate, meaning that one is clockwise, one is counterclockwise, so you don't tend to spin up your vehicle. If you think about it, if you only have one propeller, your vehicle wants to spin the other way, which is why if the tail rotor on a traditional old helicopter fails, you see it spinning as it goes down. In terms of the coaxial, the physics problem there, which is really cool, is you spin one clockwise, spin the other counterclockwise, and that vehicle can stabilize without spinning as long as both motors are going. But you have a lot of interference. So the air being pushed down by the top blade then has a lot of turbulence in it before it passes through the second blade. That means that you lose efficiency compared to if each propeller were grabbing clean, undisturbed air. So you get some advantage. I mean, two propellers give you more thrust than one in general, but you also don't have the efficiency as as much efficiency as you would if they were uh, separated. So there was undisturbed flow. It seems kind of like it would still be difficult to keep the body from rotating because, you know, those two blades would have to be counter-rotating at not only the same rate, but you would just have to account for any little disturbance in the wind or something. Um, so aren't aircraft like that, don't they still, or I guess, you know, we're talking about small ones, but don't they still have something to keep the body from spinning out of control? Because it seems like that that would still happen. No, uh, if both motors are functioning, the one that's doing the counterclockwise and the one that's doing the clockwise uh, rotation, then you would adjust the speeds relative to each other to damp out any yawing or heading change motion that you see. That's part of what a multicopter does anyway. If you look at traditional multicopters, you always have half the motors spinning clockwise and the other half spinning counterclockwise. So the easiest solution if one of them fails is to turn the opposite one off, which would be spinning in the opposite direction. You would very slightly change the rate of rotation of the blades in order to account for that? Like that's how those work? That's pretty neat. Yes. And you guys are at the orbital mechanic. This is very similar to reaction wheels on spacecraft. So the, yeah. the relative uh, rates of those propellers could be changed just like the momentum or reaction wheels can be sped up or slowed down to orient the spacecraft. The difference is the helicopter only gets one degree of freedom, not three, because there's usually only one plane of rotation for the propellers. I saw a really wacky propeller design where uh, it, it, was a, it wasn't a fixed pitch propeller. It had a, a 45 degree um, axis that it could, you know, like flop back and forth on. And what they did was they um, had a variable rotation rate for the propellers and it changed the pitch uh, in one quadrant and not in the other without having, um, you know, like a, a slosh plate. It kind of did add uh, an extra axis without actually adding one, but it was just, just my, my brain went off into the, into the weeds there. No, it's, it's, it's good. I mean, you mentioned the swash plate. I think anyone who tries to get the maximum efficiency out of these propellers has to fight a lot of challenges. One is, as you've been mentioning, the stability of the vehicle so that it has the pitch roll and yaw that you want all the time. Uh, the other is the aerodynamic challenges. The big helicopters, if we call them choppers because they sound like they're chopping the air. That is because of something called BVI, blade vortex interaction, where the propeller blade hits the vortex of the one that was ahead of it and makes a noise. 
So a lot of the helicopters have had a lot of aerodynamic research done over the years to try to minimize that impact because not only is it loud acoustically, but it also represents an aerodynamic loss. That's interesting. So if you have fewer blades, do you have less vortex interaction just because of No, you actually apart? tend to have more. So if you look really? at the old Apaches and other helicopters like that, um, the reason for that is that their blades had to lift more each. So that meant that there was mm. more disturbance to the flow. Uh, with mm. uh, multiple blades, you tend to have a lighter uh, blade loading at any time, which means that you're not generating quite as sharp a, vor a vortex at the tip. But there's been a lot of research and, and there's a lot of details. The BVI tends to only happen at certain speeds and certain pitch, or not pitch, but uh, flight path angles. So there's uh, been a lot of flight trajectory optimization to try to minimize the amount of disturbance that you have. That's part of it as well. Even once you design the vehicle, figure out how to stabilize it and begin to fly it, uh, you can, whether it's fixed wing, multi-copter, helicopter, or new design, you have a huge difference in efficiency if you fly it at the speed and angles that it was designed to be optimal at. And all that changes on Mars because the atmosphere is so different. Yeah. So that was the next thing I wanted to ask you about. I mean, we, we know that, you know, the atmosphere on Mars has a different chemical composition. We know that it's lower pressure. So, you know, I think the obvious thing is, yeah, you have to spin your blades faster for a similar amount of lift, but like what other changes are there um, between Earth and Mars that we might not think about? Well, if we had any sort of uh, air breathing engine, which most heavy lift helicopters are still, they use traditional fuel or diesel or some kind of combustion process, that wouldn't work the same on Mars because the atmospheric composition is different. So you couldn't just ingest air like we do on Earth. Uh, most of the concepts that we've been considering are not combustion engines, they are uh, electric engines. Uh, so there you're carrying your batteries and batteries have the same challenges no matter where you are. Now, temperature is a huge deal. If you look at the efficiency of lithium batteries, lithium ion batteries or lithium polymer batteries, the technologies that right now are mass produced and have the best efficiency, when the temperature gets low, they really don't perform well. They don't hold their charge. They have a lot less efficiency when they're delivering current. So on Mars, with the temperature extremes that you would have, you would have to be very careful to make sure that the thermal cycling is minimized and that the temperature that the batteries in particular are uh, hosted in is allowing them to be efficiently used, which usually means Definitely above freezing of water and uh, usually above something like 45 degrees um, Fahrenheit, which I guess would be five to seven degrees Celsius. So that mostly means um, spending some of that battery capacity on heating the batteries, right? Yes. Or recapturing lost heat when you're uh, running your motors or electronics. So if you're, for example, processing imagery in real time and you're using a a fairly high power computer to do that, maybe uh, something with GPUs, then that itself would generate enough heat that if you could cycle 
that heat back over the batteries that that would solve the problem. But you also want it to, you know, the batteries themselves, once you're flying, the batteries will generate heat themselves because they have efficiency losses. Uh, the One of the main problems is before you fly, uh, you're going to have to heat the batteries because there's nothing else heating them for you. The other thing I wanted to mention was the atmospheric composition being so different. Airspeed measurement systems might not be as easy to calibrate, so there might be a need to calibrate them in flight. Both the altitude sensor and the uh, uh, traditional pitot tube-like sensor where we look at the difference in pressures to look at our airspeed. And then the final thing I want to mention is on Earth, we have a pretty good understanding of the types of turbulence that we're going to see. And we make go, no de go decisions every day based on weather forecasts, which are getting better each year. I don't know that we have such ability on Mars. We have some notion of storms that we can see from our orbiting satellites, but it might be, uh, well, I, I think it's, it's pretty unlikely that we have the quality of weather predictions for Mars that we do here on Earth. So if the vehicle is out flying and it encounters a storm of some type, uh, especially one that has dust, then uh, there could be a lot of hazards presented to the vehicle. It could block tubes, it could uh, damage motors, uh, make sensors unable to accurately uh, look at the environment, not just to collect science data, but to make sure the vehicle doesn't uh, contact terrain in an unexpected way. That's actually a really interesting transition because one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is um, the since the air pressure is low, my assumption was that wind wouldn't really be that big of an issue. Like, for instance, in the book, The Martian, um, one of the big flaws that, you know, is just kind of something that we decide to turn our heads away from for the sake of narrative interest is that the, the MAV was tipped over by a windstorm. And in reality, the air pressure is so low that no amount of wind on Mars could feasibly tip over a rocket. Um, but, but I guess if you are relying on that low air pressure to to fly, does that mean that wind then does actually become uh, more of an issue that you have to deal with? Well, I guess I'm not thinking that severe turbulence like you would see in a thunderstorm is going to be the biggest problem. Dust will be a problem for mm -hmm. visibility and uh, ingestion in various sensors like pitot tubes. Uh, then also um, changes in pressure and temperature could mean that your sensors are not calibrated properly anymore. Certainly, if you get in an, an, an aircraft and look at the altimeter's reading, ignoring GPS on altitude, if you go to an area of high pressure to an area of low pressure or vice versa, you can be off by 100 feet. So if the pressure changes on Mars uh, based on different weather patterns, it's already low. It's even going to get lower or maybe a little bit higher than the sensors themselves might just not have accurate readings of airspeed and, and uh, altitude. I'm guessing this, that this is something that you can account for before the vehicle ever lifts off because, I mean, I'm seeing at least that it has a maximum altitude of just like 10 meters. So that's not, you know, very high and, and it has a range of about 300 meters. So I'm guessing that you'll kind of know the local conditions because that's all that you're going to be experiencing. And so you shouldn't have too many unforeseen events, right? Well, I, I don't think that there will be surprise storms that uh, uh, happen immediately. Uh, I, I guess um, 
I don't know that we have a good enough understanding of small pressure change dynamics on Mars to know how long a time it would take things like that to happen. Now, I certainly don't think you're going to see a wildly different atmospheric pattern over that distance and altitude. I'm talking about things that just give you a little bit of error, which can make assumptions in your software logic no longer hold. Now, I also think that you're going to have cameras and uh, LIDAR or radar and other sensors that are providing backup data to the airspeed and the altitude measurements that you get from pressure sensors. So I don't think all is lost. I just wanted to mention that that would be an issue. So if you were, if we can put you on the spot and ask you to design uh, an extraterrestrial uh, flying vehicle, what would your, just running on instinct here, because you don't, you know, have time to run off and do, and do the uh, R&D, um, but how would you want to um, build a vehicle if you were writing the flight software for it? What what information would you want to have available and how would you prioritize that information? So you asked two different questions. One was the design of the vehicle and the other was the autonomy and software. Is that correct? Um, yeah, I, I guess more like if you're writing the autonomous software, how would you want somebody else to design the vehicle? What sensors would you want them to build into the vehicle for your software? Well, uh, from the control and autonomy perspective, what I really want is a good understanding of the dynamic properties of the vehicle. Something that if I were to go into a software package and simulate it, is going to be pretty close to what I actually see. So this is not me saying I want this many propellers or this shape of wing. This is me saying I want a good dynamics model of the vehicle that's going to be trusted on Mars in operation so that it doesn't have to adapt in real time, which can end up with some unpleasant uh, stability issues, let's say. Uh, in terms of the navigation, I would want cameras, at least a range sensor that would tell me how far I am from the ground independent of pressure. We've already gone through that. Um, I would want uh, data from the ground to give me an alert if there was any uh, anticipated changes in atmospheric con conditions, especially dust in time to land before the dust arrives. And uh, I, I think that in terms of software, let's just say it, I think if this is an unmanned mission to Mars, where humans are a substantial communication delay away, it has to be fully autonomous in all aspects. It has to be able from the time that the person in mission control on Earth says go to the time the vehicle lands, it has to have the software that has contingency management, emergency management, mission management from top to bottom so that it can have the maximum chances of being safe and of accomplishing its flight. And uh, I can go, I can jump down any of those rabbit holes that you would like, meaning if you want to focus on a particular level of autonomy, I'll be happy to spend the rest of the time discussing that, but uh, please guide me. So uh, we definitely don't have time for this because this is really, you know, what an, an this question is potentially a thesis. Um, but how on earth do you even start thinking about that kind of autonomy? Like, you know, we, we can't just build an entire vehicle that's run on uh, PID loops. I would love for you to pull out some code and, and walk us through it. But like from a, from a basic mathematical level, how do you get from 
math and basic logic to a vehicle that can fly itself? Well, we have a lot of heritage to lean on, both in commercial and military aviation. And so we can pull in the best of all of that into this mission. Uh, I would say most everyone modularizes the functionality that they need in an autonomous system. So you will have something like your PID loops that still have to be there, that still have to be trusted. And as long as your dynamics model is excellent, you won't get any surprises. So you won't have to have any sort of adaptive control. Uh, In terms of anticipating the what-ifs, that's really where the greatest challenges in fully autonomous flight come in, because we know normal sequences. We have checklists to run before the flight, checklists during each phase of flight, post-flight checklists, and those are fairly straightforward to program. So those can end up as scripts that execute in order as the flight sequence progresses. Uh, The harder part then is noticing when the behavior of the aircraft or the environment deviates from the conditions under which that script applies. Well, we have some simple and boring solutions for that. And in the case of uh, an extraterrestrial autonomous aircraft, if the mission is boring, meaning that it just does everything you want it to the first time, that's awesome. So when I say boring, I mean that as a goal. In this sense, uh, you would want to have the same kind of checklists for contingencies that you have on commercial aircraft today. Pilots all the time have minor problems. An instrument has failed. A communication link has failed. You're in worse weather than you anticipated you have to go around because maybe there's another aircraft still on the runway. There's a really long list of them. They follow procedures. This doesn't require creativity. This requires them to recognize the situation and follow the procedure that is associated with that situation. We can do the same thing with software. We just have to take care to put all of those checklists into the software and to make sure that our situational awareness of the environment with our sensors matched to the maps that we already have and of our vehicle with sensors inside the vehicle comparing the performance with what we expect. If the environment and the vehicle performance match our expectations, again, the mission is boring and we run it and then it's done. If something deviates from the expectations, then in 99% of the cases, if we've done our job, we will have checklists to run in that contingency. And for the other very rare cases, we will have to have the ability for the vehicle to either back up and do some sort of urgent landing if it's really that bad a case where it might crash, or to just turn off the sensor, or to fly higher more conservatively if something like a sensor fails, but it doesn't compromise the rest of the mission. And so this is how you go from having a few capabilities that are disparate into a unified system made of modules that are ready not only to function in the boring nominal cases, but also have the checklists and the perceptions necessary to adapt in other cases. Now, you'll never get 100% success. That's just not going to happen, whether it's a manned mission or a robotic mission. But with all of the painstaking work that we know how to do, we can get pretty close. So, so is it really just as simple as writing 
having a lot of foresight and writing the best if then statements that you can is is just logic if if this looks good then i do this if it looks bad then i do that um and, and does that really get you to the level of autonomy that you need to be able to run a mission on a, on a world you know half an hour away it gets you close it gets you to the 99% mark and it would be higher than 99% if this had been done a lot before but I'm putting it down there because it's Mars and we have not collected thousands of hours of flight data on Mars. So uh, the reality is uh, we will be um, needing to put in for those rare cases that the checklists don't apply the ability to adapt our systems. Now, I guess I would say that you would be best served by functional adaptation module by module as opposed to trying to adapt the whole system at the same time. This is what people tend to do. If a pilot is going to try to solve a problem, they troubleshoot by looking at one system, maybe turning it off and back on or maneuvering in a particular way, and then they see if they can fix what they think the problem is by looking at that subsystem. So they rank their hypotheses about problems and try to solve them module by module. I think that would be very similar for uh, an explorer on Mars, and we've seen the same thing. Astronauts do the same thing when they're troubleshooting. Let's say you go on an EVA and you look for damage. The astronaut is not going to look over the entire ISS, for example. They're going to go to where they think the damage happened and focus their attention on a particular set of subsystems that may not be functioning right in that area. So that doesn't mean that the problem is easy to solve any more for the autonomy than it would be for the astronaut on EVA. They're both really hard problems, but it does mean that you don't give up. So if you boost, if you have baseline procedures that handle truly 99 plus percent of what can happen, and then for the rare cases, you have machine learning strategically enabled in modules that you test one at a time, then your chances of actually learning what was wrong and recovering are much higher. Now for a vehicle that is flying such a low distance away from its base and at such a low altitude, if you're in flight and something begins to go wrong, there's a strong argument for landing and then trying to figure it out. So I think the safety would be even higher if Instead of stubbornly saying, yep, I'm going to complete this mission because mission control told me I needed to, you land if, and fly another day, right? Wait for a recharge to happen, try to diagnose the problem, and then go up again. To what extent have you tested these off-nominal scenarios here on Earth, or is it just all, you know, the software? Yeah, yeah. So you're asking the excellent question, which is a challenge for self-driving cars, self-flying planes, and everything else where we're trying to introduce autonomy. How much can you truly understand about the functionality of the system with, let's call it a digital twin model of that system, where you simulate and simulate on clouds, that being cloud computers, all of the different things that you think might go wrong and you try to find edge cases and run them. And then if you're successful in simulating all those cases for your software, you gain confidence that it's going to work. And in the early stages, you do in fact find a lot of bugs unquestionably and you fix them. I think the question is how good are your models? If your models are pretty close, then the digital twin type simulations can 
really get you to a point where you could trust your system. If your models are not close, especially if things in the environment or failures of your systems, then you could end up being surprised. In aviation, we're still not ready to accept digital twins in lieu of actual test flights in the certification process. Now, that in part is because passengers expect 10 to the minus ninth level safety, where that number is a figure that we've agreed upon, is the maximum probability of a safety critical failure per hour of flight. It's a really small number. Uh, and it means that when we hop on an airplane, we pretty much think we're safe and hopefully we're getting there even with respect to coronavirus, which is a new thing that we never certified planes for, but now we're thinking about it. Well, uh, it's unlikely that we're gonna get that giant store of data that companies like Boeing and Airbus have for their commercial transport fleet of aircraft before we launch to Mars. But on the other hand, we're not carrying passengers yet. And in fact, we launch passengers above the Earth in rockets that have nowhere close to 10 to the minus ninth reliability. So that's the wrong figure for something like a Mars airplane. Let's say that we were happy with, say, a 0.1% chance of failure, right? That's 10 to the minus third. Then that means that as long as you handle 999 of every thousand problems, you're ready to go. You just have to account for the possibility that the vehicle could be lost. I know that's not a satisfying answer, but we can't test for everything on Earth, especially the environmental things that happen. So you mentioned uh, different lighting conditions. Can you do you feel comfortable talking about um, visual navigation? Because I, I think that's something that would be you know pretty important on a world where you you know don't necessarily know that you have a constant air pressure or you know GPS for that matter. Have you done any work in in visual navigation in flight? Sure, uh, my students do visual and lidar based navigation. To be honest. Uh, I have a student right now ready to graduate that's working on self-driving cars. So I've learned some of this technology from the automotive industry. But I think that a lot of it is relevant because even though you're flying as opposed to driving, you still have similar high bandwidth data that comes into your system and you want to make sense of it in terms of where you are in your environment. So uh, a lot of the aviation, whether it's extraterrestrial or Earth-based, can take advantage of it. Um, you said that the vehicle flies at about 30 meters of height. That means that they could, in fact, use a combination of vision and LIDAR. They don't have to go to radar. Um, one of the things that's interesting on both of those is that uh, for vision, the lighting conditions are gonna be super important because shadows and low levels of illumination can limit your ability to actually characterize the objects that you're flying near, and in this case above. And you have to get to the point where you're able to recognize not only that there are rocks, but which rock. Because if you don't have GPS, you have to map your environment in terms of whatever is there. If I'm out in the middle of a field of grass and it's pretty flat, it's a lot harder to navigate using vision than if there are buildings or trees that have distinct properties. That means that wherever this vehicle is flying, it needs to keep track of each object and keep updating or localizing its position with respect to the map. It's likely going to start with a course map, but then as it flies around, it's going to refine that map. So it's effectively using something called SLAM 
simultaneous localization and mapping. Now, the vision data is really good at segmenting different object types, but vision data is not awesome for giving you depth maps. So a lot of cameras now have come out called RGBD, where they give you the RGB red, green, blue imagery, but then they also add a depth map for the pixels to tell you about how far away you are from the object that is being seen at that pixel. You also have LiDAR as a separate sensor, which still has typically better resolution in the point cloud data that it generates than the RGBD cameras do. As a standalone sensor, that makes sense because the companies have focused on that particular sensing element. So suppose you had a LiDAR, then you're gonna get what's called a point cloud. That is distances to wherever that laser beam is reflected in the environment all around your vehicle to within some kind of cone or cylinder around the vehicle. And that allows you to get a very accurate height map. So if you put that height map together with your visual imagery, it will give you the best chance to not only say there's a rock, there's sand, but also to say the characteristics of this particular rock match the one that I have on this map. So I know my position more precisely. Now, one of the things that you see is that LIDAR as well as cameras are influenced by sunlight. And we have enough data on the conditions, how the atmosphere scatters on Mars to get a pretty good idea of how these sensors are going to work as they move around in a plane above Mars, but we'll still likely have to do some calibrations of these sensors on the day of flight and hope that the conditions are good enough to get data. Obviously, if you're flying and there's not much light at all, things can be so poorly illuminated that the cameras can't get enough difference in brightness um, from the different pixels to really tell you what the object's characteristics are. The other thing that you might consider is a thermal imager to at least show you where hotspots are, which can help you um, determine at least where things that are using energy are. So you could always find your base like that because you would have energy sources there. Now the scientists would want you to carry hyperspectral imagers. But to my knowledge, hyperspectral imagers have not yet been successfully integrated into vehicle navigation systems because they just have such high bandwidth of data. It's great for science, but it's pretty hard to turn that around into any sort of real-time navigation input because you would have to have a lot of computational power to do that. But that might be something in the future as we get the ability to do more and more processing in real time you could double dip, so to speak, in the hyperspectral data to give the scientists what they want, which would be one of the reasons to have flown in the first place, and also to aid in mapping the area for navigation. Yeah, and I never thought about using that amount of data for navigation, because a lot of the time when you'd see like, um, well, like, you know, LIDAR has depth information, but no color information. And, you know, you'll see some cameras that are used for like autonomous vehicles often don't have very good color saturation at all. Um, and to go to the other extreme, I guess it might actually be pretty cool if you can handle that amount of data to not only be able to say, oh, 
there's a rock that's shaped like a like a rectangle to go, oh, there's a rock that's shaped like a rectangle that has more uh, iron in it than the rocks around it. Like that is actually valuable data if you can handle it, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it could that that is one of the ways that you could actually have the autonomous vehicle not just fly a pre-planned pattern, but actually have it modify its flight because it's recognizing the value of the science data as it's going along. So for example, that rock with iron might be a place that it hovers for a little while before it moves on. Since, since you mentioned flight paths, um, I wanted to ask, you know, for Ingenuity, we're expecting to see very short hops, which seems like it might be the easiest um, flight path to plan. But is there any special thinking that you might expect um, humans to have to do if we're planning, you know, short flight time sort of vehicles like this, where it might not just be as easy as, you know, fly in that direction for X number of meters or seconds and then land? Well, I think the scientists are always going to be providing input regarding what they want to see out of a mission. Uh, I don't see that going away anytime soon, because the reason the vehicles are there is to collect science data. Um, I think the question that I would have is, how are we going to evolve from the early flights where we'll be happy if we fly in a straight line and land safely, and the scientists are telling the vehicle when and at what altitude to fly in that straight line, to having the ability for the vehicle to do more what we're beginning to see with unmanned aircraft on Earth, which is to, for example, find a target of interest, interact with that target of interest by collecting data, assuming there's no life, and then continue to another target of interest, potentially modifying the mission that was originally set out. I think that's going to be a while in the future, but I don't think that it's out of the question. Uh, if you look, uh, and I'm sure you've looked maybe more than me, at some of the rovers like Spirit and Opportunity, during the baseline mission, people were pretty conservative and they pretty much did exactly what Mission Control told them to do. And then once they got past their baseline mission, people got a little more creative and allowed the rovers to have a little more decision-making authority regarding what imagery they captured, how they compressed it and sent it back to Earth. And I would anticipate the same sequence for flying vehicles if we are incredibly successful with some of the early flying vehicles on Mars, if they're still able to fly after the baseline science and engineering has been demonstrated, then why not? Why not let them actually feed into their systems a little more of the data that they're collecting as they go along and use that to make decisions? There's also a question of cooperation. When we have multiple robots, multiple flying vehicles together, there's going to be a lot of ability for them to share information, not only on which areas they've already collected data on, but also what areas are interesting for multiple data collection passes to happen. Uh, there's also uh, the potential of humans, whether they're orbiting around Mars or actually on Mars. How do these flying vehicles, as well as the rovers, assist the people? It's all very exciting. And uh, I think the first step then is just to show that we can fly and not crash the vehicle, which I think is about where we are now. Good first step. Do you think that there is a likely, like, I guess what, what odds would you give, you know, a, a vehicle like Ingenuity with our current uh, knowledge level of, of autonomous flight? What, what kind of odds would you give it on, um, you know, crashing during its, its initial mission? Like, do you, do you think that we as, as thinkers have a, have a good enough 
grasp on the principles that allow us to successfully do this kind of thing? Well, um, I think we know how to solve the problem. I think the only reason that I wouldn't give terrifically optimistic odds is because the vehicle does have to survive the entire launch and transit to Mars landing Mm -hmm. and, you know, exiting or being released from the lander. And all of that has to happen without damaging any of the critical systems. Now, if all of that does happen and there are no snafus, no batteries broken, no broken propellers, things like that, the vehicle is exactly the way it was intended to be by the designers when it's ready to start flying on Mars, then I would say the odds are pretty good that it's going to work. We're not going to try to launch it when there's a dust storm on the horizon. We're going to wait and say, hey, there's no dust today. It's a good time. And the sun is exactly where it should be during this maiden flight for the sensors to do well at capturing the data they need to capture. So uh, let me throw something out there. I would say uh, 70 to 80 percent success if the vehicle is there and is completely undamaged when it first starts to fly. All right. Well, thank you so much for spending this hour with us. This was just fascinating. Um, it's really fun to talk about some of the, you know, real hard like theory because most of the time we we talk about specific vehicles and you know as much details we can get into that specific vehicle. But it's fun to talk in a in a bigger uh, a bigger sense. But yeah, th- thank you for for uh, talking to us for an hour. Well, thank you for inviting me, and uh, I hope this can be useful to the listeners. So this week in Spaceflight History, we have a couple winners, more than a couple. We have Deskin Miller, the Greek, Kyle Foster, Julian and Felix of Team Wedemark Space Agency, which I was just told uh, is a town in Germany. That's what Wedemark is. Or so I guess it's like Wiedemark. Um, and sure. lastly, somebody named Arik or Eric. Eric or Ark. Um, they they guessed correctly before under the name Ark, and they went and updated their Twitter profile. So not a first-time guesser. All right, cool. So yeah, quite a few winners. And I, so I guess the clue was transparent enough, easy enough. Yeah. Uh, what was the clue? It was uh, joining the Polar Bear Club? Um, yeah, joining the Polar Bear Club. So first, do you want to you give us a quick explanation of what the Polar Bear Club is? I should probably look this up, but I know it's a group of men, traditionally, who every winter, just for some strange reason, that literally this is like one of my biggest fears, they voluntarily take a dip in frozen water. Like they cut a hole in some ice and they jump in. And that is not a phobia, but like just I, I, I hate cold water and the idea it's of that. Fun. Like that's something that'll, no, it's it would not just not fun, but for me, it's terrifying. Like I just can't, I can't fathom it. Like I have trouble with even like lukewarm water. Like it has to be hot. <laughs> so yeah, the Polar Bear Club, I will never be joining. The, the, it's the Coney Island Polar Bear Club. And, uh, and Wikipedia, uh, says that they are the oldest winter bathing organization in the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, no, I, I'm good. All right. So this week in spaceflight history is the 16th of October, 1976. Soyuz 23 becomes the first unintentional splashdown. The first unintentional Russian splash. I don't know. I don't. I don't think anybody else has ever unintentionally splashed down, other than Soyuz twenty three. So uh, twenty three was a mission to Salyut five. On board were two Russian cosmonauts. I'm going to butcher their names. I'm going to try my best. Uh, Vyacheslav Zudov and Valerie Rajdestvinsky. Rajdestvinsky. Yeah. Rajdest- Boy, I. 
I'm really, I'm really bad at, at, I just, I can't get the cadence into my head. Anyway, the previous mission to Salyut 5 was Soyuz 21. Uh, they actually had to abandon the station with just 10 hours notice. Um, we don't know what was wrong, but reportedly there was an acid smell that had been noticed uh, a day or two earlier and they're like okay we got to get out of here soyuz 21 didn't have an easy time getting away from the station they had issues undocking and had to go through their entire book of emergency undocking procedures before they were able to get away um, but but we you know you kind of expect that there are going to be docking issues on the return well there were but it had nothing to do with the actual physical uh, docking mechanism this is a little uh confusing i i rewrote this section as I was doing research uh, like once or twice because there are different sources that say different things. Um, and I believe that um, most of the confusion comes from the fact that not a lot of information was released publicly until, um, you know, the last decade or two um, when Russia started publishing more information from their early space missions. But here's, here's the best that I can tell. If I make a mistake here, write in. We'll totally correct it, and I would love to know more information. Just if you correct me, please give me a source so that I can include more than just, you know, somebody says... Uh, this is how it happened. So they ended up aborting on final approach uh, for docking. Um, initial issues arose when they were about four and a half kilometers away from Salyut. Um, the docking system that we use now is called KERS. Back then they were using a previous version called IGLA. And so it locked onto Soyuz, or it's, it locked onto Salyut. And as it's bringing them in, it's indicating large lateral oscillations. Later on, it seems that they determined these oscillations to not actually be happening. Instead, the, uh, they had booms that were, uh, used to take attitude, like, like rate. Uh, measurements. Um, and it looks like the, the booms were wobbling back and forth, giving the EGLA system bad information. And so the other uh, instruments on board didn't indicate that there was an oscillation going on. And, and here's where it gets a little confusing. The other instrumentation said that there, there weren't oscillations going on. And in investigations afterwards, it turns out that there weren't isolations going on, and so the other instrumentation was correct, um, and that uh, the oscillations were due to these booms moving back and forth. But it sounds like what happened was the EGLA system ended up trying to correct for these phantom oscillations and therefore induced real oscillations. Um, and we we can be pretty confident that actual oscillation was happening. The crew said that they felt the sway back and forth, and when they looked out the window, they could actually see that the vehicle was turning away from Salyut as it's coming in. So it looks like it, what I could determine is that Igla saw um, lateral oscillations back and forth, like translation, and tried to correct it. But since the translational RCS thrusters were deactivated, it wound up accidentally causing rotational oscillations. And so the instrumentation on board can say, yes, you're pointed in the right direction. And Eagle is going, okay, we're pointing the right direction, but we're off target. And so it starts swinging the attitude back and forth. In any event, uh, the crew um, didn't want to abort the approach. Um, they had already um, had to burn a lot of fuel because um, on orbit, 
injection, they wound up in a lower orbit than intended. So they had to use fuel to correct for that. And they knew that since they were already low, just starting the approach, and they were even more low due to all these oscillations burning extra fuel, they knew that they weren't going to get a second chance uh, at this approach. Um, mission rules said that they needed, I think, enough fuel to do two D orbits, right? Double, uh, a, a double, a two X margin for landing, right? Um, so they, they knew that they were going to have to abort to landing if, if they couldn't get this done. So they waited until the very last moment. They actually didn't call an abort until they were 500 meters away. And ultimately, um, when they were 500 meters away, the vehicle was still turning away from Salyut, and it was also moving in too quickly. The Igla um, hadn't slowed them down properly. Unfortunately, the crew was trained for a manual docking, but they weren't trained for a manual approach. They had to rely on Igla to do this. Um, so it sounds like they were really hoping that they would get close enough that they could take over at the last minute, but it Things just weren't working properly. Once it was clear that the fuel reserves were too low, um, the ground told them, yeah, you, you have to come home. And it sounds like they, the crew actually objected. They wanted to give it a second shot, but they, they were kind of overridden. They were flying in a Soyuz uh, 7KT. There were versions of 7KT that flew with solar panels, but I believe that those were the ones that had a telescope instead of a docking port. 7KT was really just intended to be a, a crew shuttle. Let's just get people to stations and back home. So anyway, this Soyuz didn't have solar panels, and its battery reserves were only good for two days. The problem is, their landing window for that day had already passed, and so they had to wait until the next day's landing window rolled around. In order to get to that point, uh, they had to conserve power, and so they wound up shutting down every system that they could, including the radio. Uh, in order to extend their on-orbit life uh, to the next uh, landing window. For the life of me, I don't know why it seemed like a good idea to fly a mission with such small energy reserves. Given yeah. that you have a, a landing window every 24 hours, I, I don't know. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense to me. Um, so once they shut down everything and, and got to the next uh, deorbit window, they successfully deorbited and came in for a landing. How... the. the <laughs> However, it wasn't a nice, clean landing. Basically, there was uh, a storm happening in their uh, in their landing target, and they got blown off course um, from the from how strong the winds were. They were blown seventy five miles off of course. That's one hundred and twenty one kilometers. That's pretty far, yeah. even for like a coming through a storm. Like what was it, a hurricane? Yeah, it must have been a storm with some pretty hot, uh, some pretty fast high altitude winds, and not just uh, not just a low altitude mm -hmm. kind of storm. They ended up landing, yeah, one hundred and twenty one kilometers off course. They ended up landing in a lake. Uh, this was Lake Tengiz. Luckily, they didn't land too far into the lake because it's huge. Uh, I measured it on Google Maps. Just roughly, it's 13 miles across and 26 miles tall, uh, north-south. Um, and and it's, it's a big lake, um, but it's sort of a marshy lake. It's not very deep. It has an average depth of two and a half meters, and the deepest it gets is 6.7 meters um, which, you know, is deep, but for an average depth of, of 2.5 meters, like 
you know, you can, you can pretty much stand. I mean, I'm shorter than two and a half meters, but like, so I couldn't stand on the bottom, but it, it's not, it's not like this is a, you know, an, a yawning chasm of a lake. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, being 13 miles across, like they could have easily been seven miles away from shore. Um, they, they were only five miles off of the North shore. So I guess that's actually, that's, that's pretty much the, the farthest from shore you could get. So yeah, pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of scary. Uh, yeah. So not only did they land in a lake, but they landed in a lake in the middle of a foggy blizzard. There were, uh, it, there was freezing fog conditions. Uh, the air temperature was 22 below zero Celsius. Uh, oh, that's really, really, really cold. Yep. That is nightmare fuel for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they, uh, you know, they designed Soyuz to be able to survive a water landing, even though that wasn't the, the primary landing mode. But even though they knew approximately where the vehicle landed, low visibility um, made sighting the, the, the strobe lights very difficult. Um, they actually weren't able to locate the vehicle through radio. They had to fly a helicopter back and forth with spotlights trying to see the thing because they couldn't see the, they couldn't see the strobes. Part of this is just due to the low visibility of foggy conditions. Um, part of it is due to the vehicle being dragged under the surface of the water. Mm. Um, it, it was partially submerged. I, I don't know if it was completely submerged. I believe it was partially submerged. Um, you know, the main chutes are still there. They filled up with water um, as salt corrosion um, attacked the vehicle. The pyros that um, control the reserve chutes ended up shorting out and firing. So now they have mains and uh, reserve chutes in the water filling up. Um, they got dragged a ways um, just just by the parachutes underwater and the, the capsule rolled onto its side. Unfortunately, it rolled with the hatch pointing down or the, the hatch below water, um, as well as uh, their antennas were below water, which is why they weren't able to be located um, using radio triangulation. Luckily, their pressure relief valve stayed above water, so they didn't end up getting flooded with this freezing cold water. Once res- the, the rescue teams, the recovery teams, once the recovery teams located the vehicle, they pretty much couldn't do anything about it. Um, the weather was bad enough that they couldn't, they, they couldn't drop their rescue teams into the water. They tried, um, getting to it in boats and like, you know, rubber, uh, rubber dinghies. Um, but the ice and sludge covering the surface of the lake, uh, meant that they couldn't make very much progress. They tried again with amphibious, amphibious vehicles, um, but those couldn't even reach the shores due to the bogs that surround the lake. And eventually they decided to just wait for the weather to clear up. And so these two astronauts had a really long night ahead of them. They were submerged in freezing water, which means that their capsule you know, got really cold really quick. Um, they also, uh, as previously discussed, didn't have a lot of power. So they ended up having to uh, turn off their heaters and their life support. And uh, the CO2, they had the pressure relief valve open, but, it, you know, without actually pushing air through it. 
Um, you know, you're not going to get a lot of air exchange. And so they wound up um, approaching CO2 blackout multiple times. And so what they would do is they would turn on their regeneration unit. Uh, you know, as soon as their vision got so bad that they thought they were going to black out, they turn on the regeneration unit until they could see again and then turn it back off. Um, just trying Jeez. to survive through the night. Yeah. <laughs> and remember, they can't just open the hatch because the hatch is underwater. Yeah. Thinking about this, I'm thinking, can't they just kind of like, and this is stupid, kind of like hamster wheel it and like roll it? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But I, I guess it doesn't work that doesn't work that way, huh? Yeah, I bet that they wish that they could do that. So it took them nine hours before they could actually get the helicopter in. Once they were able to bring in a helicopter, you know, the idea is to lift the capsule up and fly it to shore. Unfortunately, you know, this is a, a five mile trip. Unfortunately, that trip took forty five minutes because they couldn't get the entire vehicle out of the water. The capsule they could get out of the water, but the parachutes dragged along under the lake because they were too heavy to actually lift up. Um, at one point, they actually ended up dunking the capsule back into the water, um, and it sounds like they nearly uh, nearly sank the capsule when that happened. And the sort of the upshot of all of this is for this entire trip, the crew was still inside the capsule. Um, some say, some sources say that they left them in the capsule because they were presumed to be dead. Um, but the America Space article that I found, which seems, uh, to be most reliable, um, says that, you know, water recovery just was untenable. They, they didn't have the procedures to do it. It was too cold and they'd have to roll the capsule over anyway. So they just decided to, to fly them to land. One source says that they left them in the capsule even once they got to land because they were re presumed dead and they were waiting for a specialized body team to arrive to extract the bodies. Um, but I, I don't think that's, uh, super credible. Yeah. That doesn't make sense because you think that they would knock on the hatch and say, Hey, we're in here or, or something. And, and they did have radio communication with them intermittently yeah. um, through, through the night. And through the night, they were actually able to talk to the, to the crew. And the, the recovery team said that you could tell that they were in CO2 suffocation just mm -hmm. by listening to their voices. Well, uh, no matter what actually played out, um, it took them 11 hours between landing and actually getting to uh, get pulled out of the capsule. When they did pull them out of the capsule, there was frost covering the walls and the, the crew was, you know, hyperthermic. I didn't see the actual diagnosis hypothermia listed anywhere, but I mean, with those kind of conditions, you know, they, they, they weren't in a, in a good, uh, thermic thermal situation. Mm -hmm. Um, but other than the cold and the, and the long wait, they were they were healthy. They had food on board, and it doesn't sound like they uh, suffered any injuries. Duskin Miller on Twitter <laughs> had a really good quote. In the cosmonaut capsule recovery power rankings, I play Soyuz 23 as more hardcore than Soyuz 18A and less hardcore than Voskhod 2. So, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that's the correct place to put that. But anyway, uh, there you go. That's This Week in Spaceflight History. Wow, yeah. That's a... Uh pretty harrowing scenario i hope that something like that never happens again because of the idea of of astronauts like i i don't know i mean there's many ways to die in space you know i mean or not just in space yeah. but in space flight but the idea of drowning or freezing to death in a frozen lake that's probably not at the top of most people's lists of how they would like to die or even how yeah. they think that they would yeah you survived launch on top of a giant rock a giant uh bomb 
and yeah, uh, and then and then and then this is what kills you. <laughs> yeah, it, it's kind of like uh, which uh, Apollo astronaut wound up being allergic to uh, to regolith dust. Oh, I don't remember. You get all the way to the moon, and you're allergic. So do you have a clue for next week? Yes, uh, and and I think. This is going to be Dennis doing next week, but I'll go ahead and read the clue because he's not here. Next week in 2006, the clue is a fresh pair of eyes. I don't have much insight on that, but because I haven't even checked to see what the event is and nothing's coming to mind, a fresh pair of eyes, something to do with a telescope, maybe, but quite possibly not. I don't know. But if anyone out there thinks they know, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. Yeah, good luck, everybody. All right. Uh, let's move on over to upcoming spaceflight events. We got a couple of launches. First one is on October 14th, and that is the launch of a Soyuz, and that is the ISS mission 63S, which is MS-17. That is uh, the Russian designation there. That's the launch we were just talking about in the show a couple of minutes ago. This is um, another mission to station with three people, Commander Sergei Ryzhkov and Flight Engineer Sergei Kudsvyachkov and Flight Engineer 2, Kathleen Rubens of NASA. So that's nice and easy to pronounce. And that will be launching at 0545 UTC or 145 in the morning on the East Coast. So, you know, you might not catch that one. And of course, it's launching from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. That Soyuz is going to be arriving at station. And of course, the uh, the arrival and the hatch opening will be on NASA TV. So the docking coverage uh, will begin at 4 a.m. Eastern time on Wednesday the 14th. Um, and the docking itself is scheduled at 4.52 a.m. Eastern time. The hatch opening uh, coverage will begin at 6 a.m., uh, and will actually occur at 6.45 a.m. Eastern Time. And then following that is a long March 6th, and that is launching on October 14th. And that's launching NewSat 9 through 18, and those are Earth imaging satellites. And that's launching from Taiyuan, China. And again, TBD, so no exact launch time, but it is on the 14th of October, so we know that much. And then finally, we have Enroll 44 fl- finally flying. Uh, well, of course, maybe. it's flying. So. Oh, oh, yeah, hopefully. Uh, of course, it's flying on a Delta IV Heavy. Um, the current uh, launch uh, window is from 0200 hours to 0600 hours uh, UTC um, on the 16th. Um, so in the U.S., that's going to be 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Uh, Eastern on the 15th and 16th. Um, and, uh, and hopefully that actually, that actually goes off. Um, and then I have one more thing that you can watch. This is the Fall Lunar Surface Innovation Consortium meeting. Um, it's going to be virtual this year. Well, it's going to be virtual for the time being. Uh, that's happening on October 14th, so right after the uh, uh, the Soyuz uh, docking and hatch opening at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time. And there's going to be a keynote uh, from Bidenstein. Alrighty, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right, time to deal with the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. Uh, we record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, please visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. 
be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. And you can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check out our Twitter or Reddit for links. We're Orbital Podcast on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody.